Greetings and welcome to the Audio Tidbits Podcast Network. We hope you enjoy the show. Chapter 4, The Assessment Set Crises are not always what they seem to be. For example, Michelle is in what might be considered a suicidal crisis, that is, she might kill herself if something is not done. To the casual observer, it may seem that the possible suicide is the crisis. Of course, Michelle's killing herself is the potential of the crisis. But it is not the crisis itself. The crisis exists in the temporary and serious interaction problem between Michelle and her situation. Wanda's anger is almost rage-like. That bastard, my husband, can't think that he can treat me that way and that I'll just sit around and do nothing. He'll find out that I'm not just that quiet little mouse he thinks he married. I'm going to do it this time. I won't stand for it. He can't do that and get away with it. What did Wanda's husband do? What is she going to do? From her initial angry comments, we are unable to answer either question. Nonetheless, considering how angry she is, we get a sense that her actions may not work out very well. Within those actions lies the now potential of the crisis. Whatever her husband did seems to have precipitated the crisis. We can see then, that Wanda is between the precipitating event and acting out the now potential. For her though, the crisis is now. Her present interaction, with you, is the first focal point. Your assessment of her crisis will expand to include both the precipitating event and the now potential. You will look at possible causes and possible cumulative effects. Gradually, you can develop a picture of her crisis in a careful and caring way. Nonetheless, starting where Wanda is now and expanding your understanding from there allows you to assess her crisis effectively, gives emphasis to your now relationship with her, avoids the possibility of oversimplifying the crisis, on the one hand, or seeing it as more complex than it really is, on the other. You can help Wanda both understand and deal with her crisis as it really is. Crisis Focus Thus far, we have located the conflict within the interaction between the individual and his total situation. We have determined that it has a high now potential and a low self-resolution factor, justifying our intervention. We have asked, what happened, and are developing an understanding of the precipitating event. Our picture of the crisis is taking on form and content. We are ready to consider the assessment set. From this point on, crisis intervention is unlike more traditional forms of counseling and therapy. Traditionally, we want to know as much as possible about the person. His total situation. His now, then, and, when and as many other related factors, situations, conditions, circumstances, and events that possibly concern the individual and his situation now. Our picture needs to be as complete and as detailed as possible. To achieve this level of understanding requires long-term interaction between therapist and patient as well as a high level of skill and training on the part of the therapist. In crisis intervention, our focus is considerably more narrow, centering sharply and clearly on the crisis itself. This point can hardly be overemphasized, and as a test of crisis focus, we should always consider these questions. Specifically, what is likely to get worse? How bad might it get? If things get worse, what is the potential effect and on whom? Why do we think the individual or someone else in the crisis will not be able to deal with it? If we can adequately and clearly answer these four questions, we may conclude that we have clear crisis focus. Crucial to effective intervention then, is maintaining that clear focus throughout the crisis intervention process. Establishing and maintaining this crisis focus enables us to avoid going off on tangents or becoming involved with unrelated problems and concerns. Generally, our effectiveness in crisis situations is thereby increased. Brian, age 17, comes to you with a problem. He is one of your son's friends and has worked for you in your store from time to time. Other than that, you don't know him very well and have never really talked with him. As he talks, he is noticeably uneasy and repeatedly asks for assurance that you are trustworthy and that you will not tell anyone what he has to say. 
You reassure him that you will not tell anyone unless it seems that someone is going to really get hurt or something terrible might happen. Do you promise not to tell? You say, why don't you start into it kind of slow, and if you begin to get into anything that I would have to do something about, I'll let you know so you can decide whether or not you want to tell me more. Well, okay. I'm really worried and don't know what to do about it. Brian then goes on to tell you a rather involved story. His 15-year-old sister got pregnant and had to get married. She, her 16-year-old husband, and their 3-month-old baby lived with Brian and his mother. Brian says that the husband has quit school, does not have a job, and spends most of his time hanging out at the gas station. Brian saw him throw the baby on the floor one night when it would not stop crying. His sister has been drinking two or three bottles of wine every day, and Brian thinks she is probably an alcoholic. She and her husband get into a lot of fights, and Brian thinks that the bruises on her arms are where her husband hit her. His mother usually takes care of the baby, but she and Brian's sister got into a big fight last night. It started when his mother started nagging his sister about not straightening up the house and ended with the sister saying that she was going to take the baby and leave today. Brian tried to get his mother to stop her but was told to mind his own business. The sister took the baby, and Brian does not know where they are. He is worried about the baby and is afraid that something really bad might happen. Brian's situation is loaded with conflict, and maintaining crisis focus may be difficult. What is the crisis? Who is in crisis? From Brian's point of view, it is clear that the baby is the person in crisis. He sees the now potential in terms of the baby's getting hurt. The low self-resolution factor is related to the baby's inability to resolve the problem. In this complex situation, it would be tempting to focus on Brian's relationship with his mother, his sister's relationship with her husband and her apparent alcoholism, her husband's poor adjustment and apparent abuse of his child, his mother's poor relationship with his sister, or the fact that his sister has taken off without any apparent means of support. Establishing and maintaining clear crisis focus on the baby's situation will enable you to help Brian think about his options for dealing with his problem. Perhaps you might want to get him to think about where his sister might have taken the baby. He might talk with his sister's husband to see if the husband had any ideas. Perhaps he could receive help at the local child welfare office. In any event, failure to establish and maintain focus on the baby's crisis could lead to missing the point of the problem entirely. In this and other crisis situation, establishing and maintaining clear focus is essential to effective crisis reduction. Crisis Definition Clear crisis focus leads to a clear definition of the crisis. If we can confidently answer the four focus questions then we can define the crisis. We know what the crisis is, what is wrong, how bad it may get, who is affected, and why our intervention is required. As we will see, knowing these things gives us a firm foundation for the development of our intervention strategy. Mrs. F calls the hotline. She is crying and seems somewhat desperate. She had called the hotline a few minutes earlier but had hung up rather abruptly. You tell her that you are glad she called back. You had been worried about her. I was telling you about my son. He is still not going to school. Just doesn't pay any attention to me. I have told him and told him that he is going to get into trouble. Just won't listen. Kids these days think they know it all and won't pay attention to anyone. He may be involved in drugs. I know he's running around with a no-good bunch. They already have been into it with the police. You ask, what happened? Two or three of them stole a car and went for a joyride. The police finally stopped them, but no charges were filed. He keeps doing it and getting off. I hope it catches up with him one of these days. I finally talked to an attorney about it and decided to have him brought to juvenile court. My family thinks I'm terrible. They think I'm wrong. They think I don't love him. How could I do that to him if I really love him? They just don't know. They don't have to live with him. He just comes and goes as he pleases. He's never home unless I have company. Then he's always around acting smart and showing off. He always messes things up for me. I don't know. 
Maybe if I had stayed with his dad, he could have handled him. I sure can't. You ask, are you and his father divorced? About ten years now. I can't be mother and father both. I tried, but the bills and the house and everything are just too much. I have been dating a very nice man, and I'm afraid he'll quit coming around because of the way my son acts. I think I have a right to some happiness too, and my son just keeps messing things up for me. He's been stealing from me too. I confronted him about it today, and he went into a rage. He shook his fist at me, and I thought he was really going to hit me. Sometimes I really get worried about him and what he might do. He had epilepsy when he was little, and I'm afraid he really might hurt someone one of these days. I hope they lock him up or something, no, that's terrible. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't even think it. I just can't stand him sometimes. He keeps messing up my life. I just know my friend won't be back anymore. I really can't blame him. He's a nice man with money and everything. He could do a lot better than me. I'd kill myself if I weren't such a coward. You say, I hope you don't do that. Do you think about that a lot? A lot more than I used to. It just seems like nothing ever works out for me. You say, have you talked with your boyfriend about the problems with your son? I'm afraid to. I'm afraid of what he might say. He might just say, forget it. I couldn't stand that. You say, I guess that would just be the final straw. I don't know. I love my son, but I just don't know how to help him. I don't think anyone can help him. As you talk with Mrs. F, a picture of her and her situation gradually develops. She has been divorced for several years and has developed a relationship with a man about whom she cares a great deal. She is having a lot of difficulty with her teenage son and apparently has had trouble with him for quite some time. We know that he had epilepsy when he was younger and that he is getting into a lot of trouble. This is a source of great stress to Mrs. F and puts her in a bind between her family and what she thinks she ought to do about her son's difficulties. In addition, we know that she is feeling overburdened by her various responsibilities, including paying the bills and keeping her household in order. If we think about the difficulties she has had with her son and the fact that she has carried this responsibility for him over several years, it would seem that Mrs. F is a fairly strong woman who is feeling overwhelmed and trapped between her responsibilities for her son and her own personal need for happiness. She is angry, frustrated, and confused about her present situation and does not feel that things are going to work out very well. She is clearly in a crisis. The now potential is that she might do something destructive. The self-resolution factor is fairly low because she sees no way out of the bind between her son, her family, and her own desire to find happiness with her boyfriend. We know a little about her past, understand about her present, and feel for the way she expects her future to be. The precipitating event was her son's going into a rage and threatening to hit her. That was the final insult. Our focus on the crisis combines with our definition of that crisis as we gradually start to help her think clearly and plan ahead. Potential Cumulative Effects once we have a clear crisis focus and a satisfactory definition of the crisis, our assessment turns to the individual and his situation. Remember, we are not seeking full understanding in the psychiatric sense. In crisis intervention, we concentrate on looking for immediate and potentially long-range cumulative effects. The notion here is that crises tend to spread out or diffuse. It is rather like the well-known snowball effect. As a generalization, crisis tends to be contagious. In any crisis, anticipated diffusion is included as a special part of the crisis definition. Consider this very exaggerated example. Suppose Dick's crisis involves a severe marital disruption. The precipitating event was a serious argument in which he learned of his wife's marital infidelity. We find him very hurt, frustrated, angry, and feeling that the only solution is for him to pack his bags and leave. Let's think about what the snowball effect, the potential cumulative effects, of his leaving might be. If Dick leaves his wife, his boss might fire him. If he loses his job, his wife may not have enough income to care for the children, 
as a result of her frustration and discouragement, she may neglect them. If she finds herself unable to care for the children, she may leave them with her mother, whom Dick and the children detest. If the children are forced to stay with their grandmother, the oldest one, age 16, may run away. If she runs away, she may get hurt or in trouble with the police. If the police get involved, Dick's friends and business associates may find out about it. If they find out about it, his social position and interpersonal relationships may be jeopardized. If that happens, he may become even more angry, hurt, frustrated, and at a loss as to what to do. This example is, of course, quite exaggerated. Nevertheless, we need to see that people in crisis tend to act in impulsive and sometimes self-destructive ways. One of the main reasons for this is that they tend to be functioning less as rational, reasoning people and more as feeling, emotional, impulsive individuals. Most crisis situations result because feeling and emotion have supplanted reasoning and planning. Thus, it is difficult for people in crisis to think ahead, anticipate the consequences of their behavior and actions, or develop plans leading to a satisfactory solution for their problems. This is, in large measure, what we mean when we judge a crisis to have a low self-resolution factor. As we intervene into crises then, along with asking, what happened? We want to ask the individual, what ideas do you have for dealing with the problem? And, what do you think will happen if you follow through with those ideas? In that way, we can help him consider possible implications of his ideas and impulses and begin to help him think about alternative solutions and alternative ways of dealing with the crisis. Considering such possible cumulative effects, focusing on the nature and implications of crisis behavior, and influencing alternative behavior and planning, gives us further insight into the nature of crisis intervention. We are beginning to deal with the most common question asked by newcomers to crisis intervention methodology. Namely, what do I say? We also can see that in crisis intervention we are developing a relationship in which our primary role is to understand what is happening, to ask questions, and to serve as a sounding board for the feelings and ideas of the person in crisis. As we think about potential cumulative effects, we are really thinking beyond the now potential, which is, of course, the worst possible outcome of the crisis. In addition to the worst possible outcome, a crisis may have other outcomes and implications. People in crisis are generally not in an emotional position to be able to think through these possible outcomes and implications. They have difficulty fully understanding and thinking about the cumulative effects of their situation. Nevertheless, they feel compelled or impelled to do something about the problem. The tendency is to do something very drastic. In some crisis situations, the individual may consider the possibility of killing himself. In one situation already discussed, a teenager, Anne, had decided to go to a friend's house and get turned on with drugs. In another situation, a mother, Mrs. F., had decided to take her son to juvenile court. It is important to see that people in crisis are extremely uncomfortable and feel a strong need to reduce this discomfort, or pain. In psychological terms, most people tend to have a low tolerance for situational ambiguity or confusion. They have a need to reduce the ambiguity or confusion, on the one hand, or if it is not possible to reduce it, they have a strong need to avoid it, on the other hand. Emotionally, they are pressed either toward doing something about the problem or, in some way, running away from it. This fact of human nature is what accounts for the cumulative effects discussed earlier. The individual is upset and probably agitated. His efforts to do something about the problem result in making things worse. Similarly, if he chooses to avoid or run away from the problem, that too can make things worse, but at least he feels that he is doing something. Very rarely do people in crisis consider the possibility of doing nothing. Do nothing? That seems too easy. In most crisis or tension situations, doing nothing is, in fact, extremely difficult. Yet, in crisis intervention, the wisest course may be to encourage the individual to tolerate the discomfort, the pain, the confusion, and the ambiguity. The suggestion is therefore, when in doubt, do nothing. As we talk with those in crisis about their possible courses of action, we should ask them, what would happen if you simply did nothing? 
this question surprises people. It has not occurred to them that one of their options is to do nothing. They can wait to see what happens. As you think with them about possible cumulative effects, about possible undesirable outcomes, it is important to help them think through the implications of following their impulses or first inclinations. As you do this, you and they may come to the conclusion that, in the present crisis, their best course of action is to wait and see. Causes of crisis. Following from our considerations of crisis focus, crisis definition, and cumulative effects, let us now focus our attention on causes and effects. Figure 4 indicates that our question is, what could cause a crisis like this one? It is important to see that the question is not, what did cause? But rather, what could cause? For example, what could cause someone to want to kill himself? What could cause someone to become extremely upset or hysterical? What could cause a teenager to want to run away from home? What could cause someone to want to quit his job? What could cause someone to abuse or misuse drugs or alcohol? The focus on could cause is, on one hand, a relatively simple notion but, on the other hand one that goes against our usual way of thinking about problems. Typically, we look at a problem and want to know in detail, the situations, circumstances and events leading to the specific problem. In crisis intervention however, we need to have in mind a set of likely causes of a variety of crisis situations. When we are dealing with a person in crisis, we need to know the most likely causes of a crisis such as the one we now see. For example, the three most likely causes for crises involving threats of suicide are severe marital or family difficulty or disruption, having done something or having experienced a situation that causes extreme feelings of guilt or worthlessness, or some external event that threatens an individual's social and or economic well-being. For each type of crisis situation with which we deal, there are one or more likely causes. As we look at the individual and his crisis, we want to consider the kinds of things that probably have caused his crisis. Understanding the possible causes for crisis reinforces the social interaction characteristic of this crisis intervention model. The model argues that crises always involve disruption or conflict within the interaction between the individual and his total situation. Possible causes of crises then, always relate to factors, situations, conditions, and so on, that cause conflict or disruption in the interaction. As we know, crises are caused, or set off, by precipitating events. Our own life experience, our experience with people in conflict, our supplementary reading, and our understanding of precipitating events help us understand the kinds of things likely to cause a variety of crisis situations. If a teenager runs away from home, he has probably experienced a blow-up with his parents, has had a significant problem at school or with one or more of his friends, or has been tempted by the opportunity to be on his own or with his girlfriend or boyfriend. If a child appears to be extremely fearful and apprehensive on his first day of school, the likelihood is that he is afraid to move out from the protection and shelter provided by his mother. As you encounter various crisis situations, it becomes increasingly less difficult to speculate about the possible problems and factors in an individual's interaction that were sufficient to cause the crisis. We see the crisis and have a good understanding of the situations, circumstances, and events that could cause this kind of problem. Our next step is to look carefully at the individual and his total situation in order to discover what caused his particular crisis. Knowing that gives us two special advantages. First, we know what a cause looks like. This point may seem trivial, but it is important to be able to recognize a cause when we see it or are told about it. People in crisis are frequently unable to tell us what happened or to explain what caused the crisis situation. They tend to attribute causality to situations or circumstances that are either too far removed from the crisis to have caused it or else are only incidentally related to it. For example, a young man becomes extremely tense and depressed. We ask him, what happened? He says, I don't know. I have never been a very happy person and have been nervous since I was a child. It must have something to do with my background. 
our understanding of crisis and our orientation to precipitating events tell us that, although what he says is probably true, this does not explain why he suddenly became tense and depressed. Something must have happened to precipitate the present crisis. This understanding leads us to ask additional questions and helps us keep him focused on the present situation and what happened to make things worse today. We would probably ask if anything unusual happened at work, at school, with his family or friends, and so on. With our understanding of possible causes, we can help him discover circumstances that might have caused his present crisis. This helps him focus on the real problem instead of on possibly irrelevant or tangential events or circumstances. A clear notion of the most likely possible causes of crisis also enables us to help people think in a relevant way about what happened when they are feeling confused, somewhat disoriented, or are having difficulty organizing their thinking and feelings. Moreover, the individual will develop feelings of security and trust because we understand what causes people to find themselves in crisis and are able to understand how things got that way. Let us emphasize a point that may be easily overlooked. Since the crisis developed now or at least in the immediate past, the cause or at least a major portion of the cause also occurred in the immediate past. As we work with people in crisis, we will remember the significance of the precipitating event, and we will continue our search for it until we have found it. In crisis intervention, our commitment to the individual is in part an implicit agreement to continue our involvement with him until the crisis is resolved and until both of us understand what happened. Unseen Effects The final phase of the assessment comes after we have developed an understanding of the cause or causes of the individual's crisis. Our understanding of possible causes includes possible effects. An example may serve to clarify the point. Suppose your married daughter calls you one afternoon, and she is quite upset and crying. From some of the things she says, you get that fear in the pit of your stomach that comes with recognition that someone may be suicidal. At a minimum, she is confused and hysterical. We have some ideas about what might have caused these intense emotions and feelings. In addition, we know that people who become that upset are very caught up in their own feelings and emotions. Frequently, one effect of this intense self-concern is to forget or to be unable to deal with other responsibilities for example, the care of young children. As you respond to your daughter and her crisis, discussion about her children may not develop spontaneously. Our knowledge about this kind of crisis though, should prompt us to inquire about the children. Where are they? Who is taking care of them? We know that one possible effect of the mother's crisis may be her unintentional neglect of her children. It is our responsibility to be aware of this possible effect of her crisis and to check out the situation. As you think about the possible causes of a variety of crisis situations, you begin to develop notions of possible effects or undesirable situations that frequently accompany such crises. Considering and thinking about this dimension of crisis intervention will stimulate your imagination and enable you to foresee possible consequences by drawing on your own experience and common sense. Brenda, age 9, is in the middle of a very complicated crisis. Do you remember the little poem about the girl with the curl in the middle of her forehead? When she was good, she was very, very good, and when she was bad, she was horrid. Well, this describes Brenda, except that she was terrible most of the time. She would not behave on the school bus, was always getting into fights with other children, would not do her schoolwork, almost never obeyed her teacher, and was undoubtedly the biggest problem in her elementary school. She either could not or would not stand still, sit still, or be still. For the third time that week, her teacher bolted into the principal's office, saying, It's Brenda again. She came back inside at recess and took every single pencil in the room and did something with them. I don't know where they are. We can't have school without pencils. I've had it. Either she goes or I go. The teacher had said that before, the principal believed that she really might do it this time. The pencil incident was the final straw. The principal had a real crisis on his hands. To placate the teacher, and with no better ideas occurring to him, he expelled Brenda until her parents could give some assurance that her behavior would improve. The unseen effects of his action were numerous. 
The teacher was still thinking about Brenda when she returned home that evening. By that time, she had begun to see some humor in the pencil episode, and she wondered if expelling Brenda might not have been excessively harsh. She knew that Brenda had specific learning disorders and had a lot of difficulty controlling her emotions and behavior. She was preoccupied about it that evening and became fairly nervous and irritable. Her husband's efforts to reassure and comfort her just ended up in a big fight. Things got so bad that even her own teenage children got involved in the argument. The teacher and her family finally got things worked out that evening and came to the conclusion that the principal had overreacted and probably did not know what he was doing, anyway. The teacher came back to school the next day convinced that the principal was incompetent and blaming him for the impulsive way with which the problem had been dealt. The superintendent of the school district learned about the episode and called the principal in for a conference. As it turned out, the principal's action was probably appropriate, but he should have advised the superintendent before taking such drastic action. The principal said, I just forgot. It was the third time that week that this situation had come to my attention, and I just took action without thinking things through very clearly. Now what happened to Brenda? When her parents learned she had been expelled, they were even more convinced that the school did not understand their daughter and did not really care about what happened to her. They had been involved in many conferences at school and were receiving help from the local mental health clinic. What do those people expect from us? We are doing everything we can possibly do. Do they want us to beat her? How do they expect us to solve the problem when the professionals at the mental health center don't know how to solve it? The parents had this discussion at the supper table, and Brenda's brothers and sisters thought the pencil episode was very funny. They could just see Brenda's teacher storming into the principal's office and telling him about the incident. Brenda? She had a good supper, got a vicarious satisfaction out of seeing her parents so angry with the school, enjoyed the attention from her brothers and sisters and their amusement with her prank, took a nice hot bath, and went to sleep, dreaming about whatever nine-year-old girls dream about. The principal's effort to deal with the crisis had many unseen effects. Interestingly however, his action had little, if any, effect on Brenda. What was the cause of the crisis? Of course the cause was Brenda's behavior at recess. The principal's intervention was directed at the cause of the crisis. His hope was that his action would lead to a change in Brenda's behavior, but he probably only served to reinforce her undesirable behavior pattern. As we intervene in crises, thinking about the unseen effects of the crisis and of our intervention will increase our effectiveness, and perhaps more importantly, careful attention on unseen effects will decrease the likelihood that our intervention will make things worse. In crisis intervention, sometimes we will help, sometimes we will not help, but we want to do everything we can to be sure that we do not make matters worse. In summary. To summarize the assessment set, we are clearly focused on the individual's crisis. We have it clearly defined. We have assessed the individual and his total situation sufficiently to develop a picture of what is happening. We have developed a causal explanation of the crisis that includes the precipitating event, and we have explored the cumulative and the unseen effects. Basically, we are focused on the crisis and have a good idea about what is going on, what happened, and what might happen. In addition, we have been sufficiently involved with the individual to enable him to develop a similar understanding of what is happening, what happened, and what is likely to happen. Now we are ready to develop our intervention hypothesis, our possible solution.